what is something about your life that maybe up to this point has been um, surprising to you? Like maybe where you sit this morning, it's surprising to you what you actually like do for a living, like your occupation, um, your calling. I was having a conversation with, with uh, my son Judson this week about uh, a calling into ministry and what that was like for me. And as I stand here before you, if I looked back on my Judson self, this would have been a very surprising thing to me. I never would have in a thousand years thought this would be what I did, what God had called me to do. It was surprising. When Danette and I first started on a road to homeschooling our kids, we did that for a season, and we're doing it again in some ways with both our youngest boys in different fashions. Dude, we never thought. Like, I had some homeschool parents in my youth group when I first started as a youth pastor, and I was like, man, I'm never doing that. And yet, here we are. Maybe you did not ever think you'd be a lawyer or a teacher or that you'd have this job. Maybe you thought and dreamed of some other job that you would do, and you sit here this morning surprised at what you actually do. Now, of course, there's some of us in this room, this is exactly what you wanted to do. And you're so, so uh, it's, it, it, it also blows your mind that you get to do this. Now, maybe it might be even the person you married, or that you aren't married, or that you're divorced. Maybe it's that you're here in this city, or you're at that school that you teach at, or at that particular firm. Or, or maybe it's the people you're friends with. I have this uncanny ability to have like, like, bad, like a bad first impression of my friends. Like some of my best friends are people that at first, when I first met them, I never thought we'd be friends. And it's a surprise that I'm such good friends with them now. What are you surprised about? What's unexpected for you? That you're surprised that... It's a surprising piece of your life that this is where you're, you sit. Now, I want to add a couple wrinkles to this. Now, what is something that's been utilized in your life to get you to this place? Like, like how did you arrive here? Where you sit this morning, how did you get to this place? What were the things involved that got you here? Certainly, there was probably unexpected things connections, a skill, that one moment, how many of you are surprised by something that happened to you outside of your control to bring you to this place? It, it, it might have been a tragedy from your story or, or sin. That thing that happened to you got you to this moment, how you ended up here. And, and if you were to start to deduce this and think about it, you, it would be hard to believe or explain. In the church in the Bible, we have a word for this, we call it providence. How, how God governs the things that come to pass. Like, it's more than fate, it's personal, it's not impersonal in the way God's providence works. And yet, God's providence works through human means and actions, all those things 
that got you to this moment, like there's a lot of them, the multiverse that got you here, like all those things at work, we have a word for it, and it's providence that like guides it. Now, people try to debate and talk about providence, like they have ideas, there's art pieces that are written about providence, like one that might sound familiar to some of you who are of a certain age is a Garth Brooks song called Unanswered Prayers. Ever heard of that song? Nobody? No Garth fans in the room? Yes, thank you. Just the other night at a hometown football game, my wife and I ran into my old high school flame. As I introduced them, the past came back to me, and I couldn't help but think of the way things used to be. She was the one I wanted for all times. And each night I'd spend praying that God would make her mine. And if he'd only grant me this wish I wished back then, I'd never ask for anything again. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs that just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Because some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Like that song... Silly as it might be, sentimental as it might be, is wrestling with this idea of providence. Now, as we come to Esther 2, how did we end up here? We read at the very first verse, the king's fury. How we ended up here is the king's fury. His fury at Vashti for not obeying his commands to unconceal herself for all of his, him, for himself and his royal officials and all the, the upper heads of his now expanded kingdom. And providence. Now maybe at the outset, and this is the, the backdrop for this sermon, the, the hidden work of God ha, has brought us here. We read, and the king remembered. Now that word is significant. Remember in Esther, the, the couplets that I talked about two weeks ago, that you have you know, Esther and Vashti, and you have Mordecai, and who we'll uh, learn about next week is Haman. And then you have the king. And who is he to be compared to? Well, to Yahweh, the Lord God. When, when, and what the readers of Scripture immersed in Scripture, living in exile, would have like kind of started to think about here, is that when God remembers in the Bible, what often follows is an act of deliverance, redemption, salvation. God acts with mercy and grace. In Esther, there are two times when King Xerxes remembers. The first one is here, chapter 2 in our passage. The second one will will happen later, and it's of equal significance. In, In our passage, remember, Vashti here doesn't receive a second chance. Instead, the position of the queen is raised up and restored and given a substitute for Vashti. A substitute who will be put in place and act, and something will come of this. And what the reader should be expecting is that maybe it's going to be something good for God's people. For God to remember his people, his covenant, his promises, for God to remember to bring salvation. Whenever we pray as God's people in the name of Jesus, the reason we conclude our prayers with the mention of the name of Jesus is because we're following this ancient biblical practice, calling upon
upon God to remember. As we bring Jesus' name before the Father, we're asking God to hear our prayers. Not because of how great and important we might happen to be. We're asking God to hear our prayer because of his son Jesus and what he's done. We're, We're saying, in essence, God, remember your son Jesus and all that he's done. And all that you've promised to do through him. Remember your son, O Lord, and remember to respond to my prayer. When we pray in Jesus' name, amen, we're asking God to remember. And for God to remember in the Bible, it's a big deal. So it shouldn't surprise us that when King Xerxes, remember, he's being compared here to God in some ways. Obviously, he's not God doesn't even come close to God, but there is a comparison happening. The result is a blessing for God's people. So when the king remembers, his court officials take action in the result, and maybe this something is unexpected. Like if you didn't know the story of Esther, if you didn't learn it growing up, maybe if you don't really know it here this morning, the unexpected thing is, well, well the king's going to have an a empire-wide beauty contest, a beauty pageant. And this is the first point this morning. Unexpected, the unexpected thing in the text is beauty in God's plan. And what you should see is just this, the, the unexpected way that God works in the story of Esther, starting with a beauty pageant. Now, dating myself, I remember as a kid, one of the things my whole family would gather around the television set to watch together. Besides Saturday Night Live, now don't judge my parents too harshly. Besides Saturday Night Live, Three's Company, the Indy 500, Monday Night Football, we would gather to watch the Miss America pageant. A beauty contest. My whole family gathered around the TV. We would hear the song song, Here she comes, Miss America. You remember this? Charlie, you got me? The king decrees an act of a beauty contest. Now, there's a lot going on here. There's several motivations for this. It is political, right? If young women, young virgin women from all over the empire participate, then what might be the benefit for the king's empire? Remember, he threw a party. He'd just thrown a party where Vashti acts in defiance against him. That party was to raise money, perhaps, for a looming battle with Greece. So what would the the act of a beauty pageant have for the king's benefit in unifying the empire? Now, remember last week I also talked about this idea that the queen represented Mother Persia. If... If the queen now could be anyone from anywhere in the vast empire of Xerxes, what would that communicate? Normally, what would happen in these cultures with marriage and with, unfortunately, with women, is they would be used as pawns for alliances. History is littered with women being married off to kings and nobles and princes for such things. Now, modern pageant life might fail here because 
modern pageant life has a professional element. So, so maybe something maybe more apropos would be The Bachelor, right? Anyone can get the rose. Any girl from anywhere chosen to marry a prince. And as we read this, how does it make you feel? Ladies, women being chosen, passed around on the basis of beauty and sex appeal. These same women without agency, without voice, without power, and men and systems acting upon them, judging and evaluating them all based on outward appearances. And and, and yes, this is true. About the only people in this time period that would have less agency than a young woman would have been a household slave. And so maybe as you read this, you think, why? Why would a culture do this? Why did this one? Why does ours? I mean, before we get too judgy about Xerxes, we do have the bachelor and the bachelorette. Our our progressive culture maybe hasn't progressed much. There's an app called Tinder that you can swipe left or right, dating myself probably even with that. And maybe a little closer to home, when someone beautiful enters the room, what do you do? Maybe if we probe a little deeper into our hearts, maybe this brings all sorts of difficulty for us because the ways we feel about ourselves our beauty, our bodies. Charlotte Getz wrote an article about this. She starts with the words, I'm getting older, which means her hands are starting to look like her mom's, she says. Things once firm have given away to gravity. Curves are soft. Her body is betraying her. And she adds, the wrinkles buried into my forehead are the most focal point of my self-loathing. As if I did something specific to render them. Shame on me for emoting with every last inch of my face. And it's only going to get worse. Like when I turn 36, now just to frame this, she's 35. The whole thing is egregious. Now I think we all feel this to some degree. The, the betrayal of our bodies and the way allure like seeps out of us with every passing day. And even as I say this, I'm saying something about the way we think about beauty. Charlotte continues, I've begun to wage war on my own maturing body. I've dumped a truckload of money into things like collagen peptides, retinal retinal serums, microcurrenting, and semi-regular hydrofacials. I don't know half of what these things are specifically accomplishing, but I've been assured by Instagram accounts and people like B-list celebrities that cumulatively, I will eventually literally turn back into a child. As much as I'd like to play the gal who is mysteriously aloof about her looks, I have to confess, now hear this, hear this, because I think this is the cry of our hearts. 
I have to confess that I long to be beautiful. Specifically, I long to carry beauty into the world. Like lavender brings calm, like fire brings light. Be delighted by me. Be overcome by me. Be awed by me. Let me bring you joy. Let me put a smile on your face. I want to move through the world like a song. The, the longing seems writ in the twirling strands of my very DNA. You see, we all long to be beautiful, to bring some sort of beauty into the world, for, for someone to acknowledge our beauty. We are on the lookout for it. We are on the lookout for beautiful things and beautiful people, and we long ourselves to be recognized as beautiful. And maybe we just stop and recognize this reality at play within us, inside of us. And what happens when we don't feel this way? And though we may not have the power in this room to be as shrewd as Xerxes, when we think about marriage or intimacy with someone else, we discard those who don't meet our physical standards of attraction. We walk into a room and dismiss a person based upon what our eyes see. And so Esther too is confronting all of this within us. It is holding up a mirror to you and I. The ways we worship beauty, the ways we long to be beautiful, and all the injustices present in that search. The way it feels to be a woman who is objectified. The expectation for what it means to be both a woman and a man in a culture. Not only would Xerxes have a harem of hundreds of women and objectify the queen and her body and demand things of her body and have this, this beauty contest, he would also, hear this, have 500 eunuchs in his court. Men castrated. No one was safe in his environment. Everyone's sexuality and body could be altered at the disposal of the king. And maybe this should lead us to an additional question. Why is it in the Bible? Is the Bible condoning this? In Esther, we must see that the author is showing us the reality of this world. And before we get so high and mighty to jump out of that world into our own and say, I can't believe this. This is very much our world. And it's also wanting to show us this is the world and the reality of the world that God plants himself in and works in. The king discarded lo the loads of other women that didn't quite meet his physical standards. But the point of this chapter is that Esther won his favor. Alistair Begg said in his sermon, God works through human decisions even when those decisions 
aren't good ones. God is using the things of the world, including beauty, to accomplish his purposes. And it's mysterious. The bad systems and the objectifications and the good things that we do, the ways we act with equity, even when we do it with freely, this God uses our sinful hearts and actions, and it is God who keeps us from sinning against him, even when we act out in integrity and fight for justice and care that women would be objectified in this way. God is working in all of this. That's providence. So you might ask, so what? How does this intersect with my story? Well, I think in many ways. When, when we grasp grace, the gospel, that even the good we do is because of the grace of God having its way in us, like I'm so quick, personally, to dismiss the bad and prop up the good in my life, we're all good at that, really. I mean, how many of you have been to a funeral like the story of the funeral is propping up the good of the deceased. And there's something about that that's fine and good, but there's also something about that that's not real. We, we read a, re- a story like Esther and maybe we think, I-, I wouldn't be so beholden to or obsessed with beauty like this way. And it becomes easy for us to judge Esther and Mordecai and even more so Xerxes. And maybe this is why we struggle so much with divisions in the church because of our judgments of both the world and the church. But in Esther, we have to see the text does not describe anyone's motives. It's it's hidden. Even here, it's hidden from us. Why, Why Mordecai tells Esther to not disclose her identity. And we'll find out that later in the story Do you know that's how you can honor other human beings? By simply observing what they say and do? And and, and as best as you can, accurately recounting what is said and done without making judgments of motivations. Why? Because only God knows. It's also very important to do this with God as well. In his providence, many have walked away from the books like Esther and said, you see, see, God is a patriarchal misogynist. If he wasn't, why would he let an innocent orphan girl be placed in such a terrible situation where she had no choice? But the text never says God approves of what anybody is doing. It's reporting this story. Why? Why would it not give us more? Now, two reasons, I think to challenge us into accepting the reality of the broken world you and I live in. And to believe that in spite of all that brokenness, God is still very present in it. And what's happening in Esther is pressing that into us. The world we live in isn't much different than the world of Esther. God did not approve of people killing his one and only son, but what? He does allow it. Through his mysterious providence, salvation is brought into the world. God doesn't approve of the beauty standards of Persia or our world. But he's still at work in both. It would be wise for us to not assume the motives of both 
God and or other people. There is only one that can accurately see the motivations of the heart. There is only one that can peer behind the curtain and see why we do what we do. Only one knows motives. And in a world that's constantly trying to find out your motives, using algorithms and other things to do so, it is good news to know that only God sees the heart. Now, it's also difficult news because God sees the heart. Now, as we move on, there's two ingredients in the unfolding of human action here in this story and human history. It's human action, even the ways we think about beauty, sexuality, and power, and God's wise and loving providence. And God calls us into a broken world the broken world we live in, to believe that he is here, present in the midst of it, even when we can't clearly see it. God calls you and I to act in the circumstances, the things I asked you about at the beginning, where he's placed you, where, where you don't always know how to do what, what to do, where your motivations are like a, a mixed bag. He calls you to move into this world with faith. And this leads us to the introduction of Mordecai and Esther. And the second unexpected thing, which is exile and God's plan, right? Esther and Mordecai, were introduced to them, are both Jews. They both bear pagan names. Esther's might be the Persian word for star. It could also be related to the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. Mordecai simply means the one who worships Marduk, who is a pagan god. With pagan names, we're quickly reminded of other biblical stories, right? Think about Daniel and his friends. They too were given pagan names, and they rose up within the ranks of the Babylonian Empire. Perhaps this too is a hint of something similar for the outcomes of Esther and Mordecai. We're told that Mordecai was a Jew. Notice how it's prominently stated at the very beginning. The Jewish identity of Mordecai will have a key place in our story. He's a Benjamite, we're told. The names of Shimei and Kish are names associated with the family line of King Saul. The text is emphasizing to us a connection between King Saul and Mordecai. Now, we'll come back to that in a few weeks. Next, the lovely Hadassah, Esther. We're given both names for her as well. Hadassah means myrtle. It's the name that comes up now and again in the prophets to refer to Israel. And that might be important for us as well in the future. But she also has the name Esther. What might be in play here is the fact that it was common for Jews to have a Jewish name in use around their friends and family and a pagan name that might be used in public. This was obviously also something that happened in the New Testament. Paul and Saul. At the same time, Esther could have been, had that name given to her once she entered into the royal palace. We're not told that part of the story. We are told that Esther is brought up in the home of her cousin Mordecai. She's orphaned, has no mother or father. This too might connect us to exile, right? What was it like for a Jewish person to be exiled? Well, they often lost their mothers and their fathers. They've been removed from their motherland. 
They're without the presence of their heavenly father in the temple. Like all of this is telling us things about what it feels like to be in exile. Esther's then taken into the king's harem where she's guarded by Haggai, the one in charge of the women in the palace. It's clear in the story of Esther that that we're not being invited to read this in a moralistic way. There's lots of like questions about what Esther is being ushered in to do and the choices that she will make to do it. And we're not necessarily called to approve what's going on, but we must recognize that the author is painting a picture for us of what it looked like to be in a world as an exiled Jew. What it looked like to be in a place that's not your home. How did that feel? What did it look like? What did it feel like? And why would be concealing Jewishness, her Jewishness, of vi- something vital for the plot? Just like Vashti concealing her body from the king and his court, there's a power in the hiddenness. And this relates to exile. How, how do you and I, hear this, live in a place where we, we don't feel like we belong? Like, what do we do when we feel like our lives don't feel integrated in the midst of a particular place or community? Like, some of you feel that here in Albuquerque. Maybe a lot of you. Like, this church is a hostel for the outsider. Lots of people from not, not from here live here, attend church here. What does it feel like to be a Midwesterner imported to the queue with all these Burkenias around, talking their Burkenian. What does that feel like? What does it feel like to be someone from the south coming to this place, the desert? When we uh, landed in North Carolina last week, there, there was like, Judson was like, man, look at all these trees. And Deacon was like, look at that lake. There's water everywhere, right? What does it feel like? When you don't, when you're, you felt a place and not at home. Now, we could add a lot to that because exile also meant a lot of violence done to people and home. But any minority culture within a dominant culture asks these questions, right? Stephen Ewan, one of the actors in The Walking Dead in the Netflix show Beef, talks about what it's like growing up in America with parents of Korean immigrants. He says, he never felt at home because he was a minority, but he did feel at home in one place, in his Korean church. It made such an impact on him. And part of the way that Stephen prepares for like an audition and for acting is with emotional, with uh, praise music from his home church and a particular church uh, song that the Korean, his Korean church sang called Home. I love this. If you've seen the show Beef, not necessarily recommending it to you, although I did like it, there is a powerfully acted scene by UN where he shows up in a Korean church and encounters something there. Maybe that's what it feels like when you find your people and you're like, oh man, it feels like home, right? They, they know me. They, they understand me. They, they talk my language, y'all. 
right? It feels like, man, I, I'm home. That the hidden thing, that you're an outsider, now becomes like this thing that unites you with another outsider. And together you have this like insider-like code and language. Exile is a common, important theme in Esther. And Mordecai kind of represents this. He, he goes to the city gate and he watches after Esther. He, he, he fears for maybe her safety. Or, or he's checking in on how it's going with her, making sure she's not revealing that she's a Jew. It might even be strategic for Mordecai. One commentator suggests that Mordecai might be playing on King Xerxes' desire to unify the kingdom. A a potential queen with no lineage, no pedigree, no regional connection might be attractive for the king. And so Mordecai is using that to gain advantage for Esther. No one can imagine that keeping silent about one's religious or ethnic identity, like that would be hard. One can imagine the king saying to Esther, so where are you from? What do you do? Maybe she could diplomatically deflect the question, but it wouldn't be easy. At the same time, however, the girl from nowhere is no different from the girl from everywhere. And this may have played into the hands of the king. Who better to be Mother Persia than a woman with no particular family, no regional association? To be queen was to have access to tremendous power. This access could be used by potential enemies to to the throne. It might threaten the emperor. And so this might have been a strategy behind Mordecai's instructions for Esther to keep silent. But would that be enough? Will silence really be the best course of action for this young woman? As we will eventually see, silence will not be safe. It will not be the effective path to take. But it may have led to Esther coming to the position that she does. Again, this is what it looked like for Esther and Mordecai to live in exile. Remember, we talked two weeks ago about how some of the people had already returned to the land. But they still remain in Persia. What did it look like for them to survive? Again, Esther's not providing like judgments on this. I also will say it's not necessarily providing lots of lessons for you and I. Other to emphasize to you, this is what exile feels like. And God is still at work in the midst of it. Exile feels like you're not at home. Exile feels like you've been torn from country and family. Exile feels like, man, you might do anything and everything to survive. And exile also reminds us that God is provident, providentially working in the midst of it all. What we see is that the king loved Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. And here too we get a sense of the language of election and covenant. What is happening to Esther is what happened 
to Abraham and his descendants. In God, they found grace and favor. And in the climax of the reception is the crowning of Esther as queen. The king's grace rests upon Queen Esther as she's anointed and crowned. Israel, in hearing this, receives a gentle reminder that God has not forsaken them. In Esther, they have a vision, not of Mother Persia, but rather a vision of God's chosen and beloved servant for God's chosen and beloved people. A party is thrown, taxes are forgiven. And as you look at the story of Esther, both sides of Christianity haven't always known what to do with it. She's too immersed in the world for those who take their faith seriously, and she's too accommodating to the modern to, uh, to patriarchy and other things to modern sensibilities. And this is why scripture critiques everyone all the time. The scriptures themselves don't confirm or affirm her actions. They describe what happens. She's hardly a role model, nor does it even seem like she had much of a choice. She should have stood up, we might say, like Daniel or Joseph. But Mordecai literally says, don't make yourself known as one of God's people. Hide what you believe for now. It seems incongruous. What we do know in the Bible is that Jesus himself doesn't give straight answers either. He, he let the plan of God develop, and when it was time, he clarified exactly who he was and what he came to do, saying, I am the Messiah, I came to suffer and die and be raised again. This was the big night for Jesus, what theologians call his humiliation. The only king in the world who captures the human heart, not through physical appearance and power, but through his willingness to hide his beauty and his power. This is how the gospel works on the human heart. It, it transforms how we interpret everything. So that if we're given beauty in this life, we neither obsess over it or dismiss it, but we use wisdom with what's been given to us for the benefit of others. Knowing that Jesus too wore a crown, and by his crown we learn what eternal beauty looks like. And when we're isolated and lonely and disintegrated in this world, so sad that things won't ever feel right, we're homesick, we believe there is a time and a place coming for us that when we enter, every human heart will be honored and safe, valued, regardless of how they look, and all will be at rest. Everyone unified because God has made us one in Jesus. We can be attuned to the problems in our society, but we can't be cynical or hopeless. We can live in the world's pervasive empire. We can pray for its good, but we don't trust what it offers. We, can fo we focus on giving and not consuming. Through the gospel, we can put beauty in its proper place. We can face exile. Why? Because we have Jesus and his kingdom working in it all. Let's pray. God, help us as we uh, think about these things. It's a lot. There's a lot more we could have talked about. And we talked about a lot. But you are a God who makes a home in this world, both by creating it and then by inhabiting it in the flesh and, and even being subjected to it. And yet, providentially guiding it along. 
even the wrong choices and the wrong motivations guiding it. And so I pray as we struggle with beauty, as we struggle what it means to be an embodied people, and and what it feels like to to live in exile, to, to not be home in this world, that you would remind us that you are with us, guiding us, present to us, even though you're hidden. And we pray this morning you would help us to rest in that, lean into it, by the grace and mercy of God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.